0: Thank you, William. Let's keep that open, that amazing story. We'll look at that for a few minutes together in a second. Let's pray, though, first. So, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock, our King and our Redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was playing hockey in a team in London, um, where as far as I could tell, I was the only practicing Christian. Um, So it's a a pretty unchristian sports team, as you can imagine. The others were all very friendly, great people, but but just really had no personal faith and pretty much no interest in, in God or my faith either. So you can imagine I prayed for them, I sought to share the good news of Jesus with them, um, and I invited them to carol services, and certainly a couple of them once came to a carol service, had a couple of conversations with with a few of them along the way as they found their way. But but for most of that hockey team, it was very much, look, if you want to talk about religion and and living good lives, that's fine. We're, We're on with that. But if you start talking about God or Jesus, then please stop. And I think our culture today in this country is very much like that. A lot of the people that we rub shoulders with are very open to Christians when we're nice people but do not wish to explore with us the idea of Jesus, as we've been singing today, as a saviour, lord and king. Now, the book of Ruth certainly has a lot of kindness and goodness in it. That theme of faithfulness, modelled by Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, is a big part of the story. But we must, I think, not think the book of Ruth is simply there to teach us morals. You know, be like Boaz, be like Ruth. Uh, as, As Jonathan said at the beginning, this is a book, actually, that wants us to ask the question, where is God's king coming from? Where is God's king coming from? So just a quick recap, if you're, again, new or you've missed one or two of this series, because we're in chapter four now. Um, Ruth is one of two foreign women who marry into Naomi's family. Naomi becomes their mother-in-law. Naomi came to Moab, a foreign country from her native Israel with her husband. In Moab, her husband dies, and then, sadly, the two sons of hers die as well, leaving Ruth and her sister, uh, her uh, name is other daughter-in-law, childless. And out of love for Nemi, Ruth comes with Nemi back to Israel. They arrive back in Bethlehem in Israel, and they join the barley harvest. They're living pretty much in poverty. They're both widows. But someone called Boaz, a, a kind and wealthy older man, supports them financially. And we saw last week, an amazing story, um, Ruth goes and lies at the feet of Boaz at the end of the day of harvesting, and they're asleep in the barn, and he wakes to find her there, and she says to him effectively, would you marry me and support me and Naomi? Because we're in hard times. And he graciously, faithfully says he will. And so... It's been an extraordinary story of faithfulness, of kindness, or loving kindness is the word in this book. And it brings us to chapter 4. But as we're going to see, Ruth is much more than just a story of loving kindness. This is a story of God's plan to send a king. In very unexpected ways, God's going to send a king. Now here in chapter 4, this section... Ruth and Naomi hardly get a mention. They're certainly not present, they're not speaking. This is very much Boaz as the main character here. And there are two things we're going to see that are very special about what Boaz does here. First of them is he faithfully does the right thing, and secondly, he willingly pays a great price. He faithfully does the right thing. So we've seen it was a dramatic night. Um, He's found Ruth there asking for marriage. He says, okay, I'll I'll look after you both. He heads off for town, but he's already alerted Ruth to the fact that there's a complication. There's someone else who's more nearly related to them than he is. And again, in Old Testament law, that person has the right of first refusal on taking this pair of women on. He's Bless Ruth because she's chosen to come and approach him. She's, after all, she's, she's single, she's a widow. She could have picked any of the rich younger men in Bethlehem, but she's picked Boaz because marrying him would mean Naomi gets looked after too because they're all the same family. And so Boaz heads off to town having warned Ruth that Look, there's someone else that he gets first. I'll, I'll try and sort it out for you. And he gets to town And uh, as we can see from verse 1, he is very decisive. He goes to the city gate. He catches the eye of this other relative who's never named, that has first refusal, who happens to be passing by. Uh, Another coincidence that happened a lot in Ruth. And he says, come and sit here. He goes and gets the uh, the ten elders from the city, the, the Effectively, this is the kind of group of magistrates, the the jury, as it were, to witness what's going to happen. They sit there, and then he explains to this unnamed relative what's happening. He says, look, Naomi, your relative, our relative, she's come back from Moab. She is penniless. She needs someone to redeem her land. We saw last time that there was a law in the Old Testament that if a relative of yours died childless, you should buy their land so that it wouldn't get lost to the family. In Israel, to own land was pretty much citizenship. That's what um, made you belong in the land. It was like having a you know, passport or a visa. So Naomi needs that security for her family. So he says, look, you're the one. You're nearer than me to her. You should do it. And the man thinks about it. He thinks, well, you know, Naomi, she's, she's pretty old. She's a widow. She's not going to have children. It's not a massive financial risk to take her on. Um, it possibly meant marrying her as well. We're not quite sure about that. Uh, and, and so he says, doesn't he, okay, end of verse four, I'll do it. Fine. I'll buy the land. It, it could be an investment, a bit of an outlay now, but it'll become mine. Not a bad deal. Bargain almost. And you have to admire Boaz so far for doing the right thing, don't you? You see, when Ruth laid his feet in he could have taken advantage of her then, couldn't he? He didn't. He was entirely pure and headed off to do it properly at the city gate and marry her. Um, He could even have kept quiet about this other relative because no one else seems to realise that this other guy is in the picture yet, except Boaz. But he doesn't. He calls the elders and says, look, I want you to witness this, and if he wants to marry her, then he should. And redeeming something always has a cost. That's what redeeming means. It means paying a price to set someone else free from from poverty, or in our case, from sin. Redeeming costs you something, but the man says, this doesn't seem too costly. I'll do it. And I guess today, thinking of doing the right thing like Boaz, he is an example for us here. If you've ever been tempted to, um, you you pass a kind of road sign saying 50 speed limit. Have you ever been tempted to, to just kind of go a bit beyond that? thinking, well, look, I can't see a police car or a speed camera. And Boaz, he's tempted, perhaps, to to bend the rules and sneak the marriage, but he doesn't. He does the right thing and calls the witnesses and calls the man in. And just think about marriage. He's very clear, isn't he, Boaz, that marrying Ruth must be a public thing. It's a big theme in the Bible, actually. Uh, Marriage should be publicly witnessed. It's... In our culture today, people say, don't they, You know, we're living together, marriage is just a piece of paper, we don't really need that. But actually for Boaz, and consistently in the scriptures, as it says in the Anglican marriage service, marriage is um, the joining together of two parties, which is a public sign of unity and loyalty, a public sign witnessed by those present in the sight of God. So he does the right thing, but more importantly still, secondly, he willingly pays a great cost. the end of verse 4, it seemed like it was all going wrong. You're thinking, let's let's hope they get married, Ruth and Boaz, and then suddenly this other man says, oh, I'll I'll do it. So then Boaz drops the bombshell in verse 5. He says, on the day that you acquire the land from Naomi the older widow, you also acquire her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess, the foreigner, the dead man's widow, that's Marlon's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. And the man hears this, and his face falls, doesn't it? He goes and says, "I, I, I can't do it, I can't afford it. So Boaz reveals that there's another generation in this family, not just Naomi, there's Ruth. And she's a Moabite, but she's more importantly, she's younger. She's of childbearing age. And the man says, I can't do it. And you might think, well, is that because, as some people say, he is a bit um, against foreigners, doesn't want to marry a... Well, a little bit of that maybe, but he's very clear. He says, I can't afford it. He is more worried about his money than about her nationality. I can't afford it, he says. And you think, well, why is that? Well, it's partly that he's realizing that there's not just Naomi to feed now. There's also Ruth. There are now two women here to feed. You might just think, well, there's just too many wives and widows going around. I can't cope with it. But actually, even more than that, it's this. He's thinking, she might have children, Ruth. Ruth. Um, He's required by law to marry her. And she might then have children. And what happens if he then dies? Who keeps the property that was Naomi's? Her children do. Ruth's children. It's rather like he's thinking, well, it was just, could you buy this house and have, have Naomi as well? That was fine. You know, we'll pass it on through our family. But now it's, could you have Ruth and her children potentially? It's like he's thinking, you're asking me to buy the house and then give it to another family when I die. And my own side won't benefit. And he says, I can't afford it. Well, in our culture today, if you want to kind of refuse a deal, you'd probably get a, get a lawyer in and, and witness saying, I'm, I'm not going to do this, I won't sign the contract. In their culture, as verse 7 tells us, you took off your sandal and handed it over. It's slightly bizarre to us, isn't that kind of custom? But I guess the sandal, was a, the, 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 it was a picture of the person that wore the sandal on the ground owned it. It's a picture of owning the, the land you stand on. And he says, no, you have it, you do it. It's going to be your property, Boaz. But as um, you might realize also, in Deuteronomy 25, if you're taking notes, there was another custom to do with sandals where if a member of a family died and left a widow, their brother or relative was meant to marry that widow to keep the family name going. And if he refused to do that, and Jesus was asked about this by the Sadducees, you might know one of the Gospels, this custom of marrying your brother's widow. If you refused to do that, to take her on, she could shame you by coming over to you, pulling off your sandal in public, and spitting on you. It's quite likely here that the man taking of his sandal is saying, I'm not prepared to marry the widow, And Boaz, because he's graciously saying, well, I am, I will do it, I'm I'm another relative, is sparing him the shame of it, actually. So he takes his sandal, he gives it to Boaz. Boaz is willingly paying the price that this unnamed man would not pay. So verse 9, Boaz sums up what he's doing. Two things, he says. Verse 9, I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Of Kilion and Marlon, that's their sons, who've also died. So he's paying out the cost to keep the property in Naam's family. Secondly, verse 10, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. He's saying, isn't he, we're hoping we'll have children, so that their name can continue through posterity. He's undertaking to marry Ruth, to protect Naomi financially, but to keep the family name going too. So here is Boaz. Um, He's wealthy, isn't he? He's able to help them because of the money he's got and the family connection. But more importantly here, he's willing as well. He's willing to help, even if it costs him a great deal. He's tying up his future with Naomi's and Ruth's. So again, Boaz should, I'm sure, make you and me think to ourselves, well, how selfless is my life? What am I prepared to give? What cost would I undertake, willingly, to help someone else in need? Now, if God's blessed me financially, how can I give away from what I have to see others' needs met and security guaranteed? Or if God's gifted me relationally, how can I... Give compassion, love, support, prayer to someone this week who is in need at the moment. Those are a great, great example of willingness to pay the price to give to someone else. The story begins to come to an end with wedding bells ringing, doesn't it? You can kind of see the confetti flying. You get to verse 11 here. But actually, this isn't the end of the story yet. He says, look, I'm marrying Ruth. But this is not just a love story, as we said at the beginning. The real character of the story is not Boaz. It's not Ruth. It's not Naomi. It's actually the Lord. He keeps popping up. And as we saw at the beginning, it's how the Lord is planning through all of these complex events to send a king for his people. So Ruth is not just about kindness, it's about God sending a king. And the elders, in verse 11, pray that this couple, Ruth and Boaz, will have many children, as many as the ancestors of Israel had. That's the reference to Rachel and Leah. As many as Tamar and Judah had through their son Perez. That's the end of verse 12 there. But if you know those stories from Genesis, Rachel and Leah, and and, uh, Judah and Tamar... They're pretty interesting stories. Two things about them. Both feature foreign women. Almost certainly all those women are foreign. And both feature quite complicated or even unorthodox ways of marrying or having children. It's almost like God is saying, um, I'm going to send a king for my people, but I'm going to do it in ways you don't expect, using people you don't expect. And so, as I kind of wrap up now, here's two bigger picture thoughts about the book of Ruth and how it helps us today. Ruth, firstly, points us to a coming king of even more significance than Ruth and Boaz. And if you watched the, uh, the birth of, uh, of Prince Louis recently and we celebrated that royal birth, this royal birth in Ruth that we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time is even more significant than Prince Louis being born. Ruth points us to a royal birth. Because King David is going to be one of the first answers to that prayer of the elders in verse 11. We'll see later. He's going to come from this line of Ruth and Boaz. And of course, Jesus himself comes from the line of King David one day. God uses all sorts of people, all sorts of complicated marriage arrangements to send a king as we're going to see. He's well able to use the circumstances of our life to bring his kingdom to. And then lastly, Boaz points us to the love of Christ himself. Ruth points us to the coming king. Boaz points us to the love of Christ. Jesus will willingly pay the price, not just for our property, but to set us free from our sins. Jesus is faithful in doing the right thing. He goes through uh, human trial, unjust trial at that. He bears the wrath of the Father for human sinfulness on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He does the right thing and he pays the full price. He gave himself, as the New Testament says, to redeem us, to buy us back for God, to make us pure as his bride to guarantee our riches in eternity. So as I finish now, maybe that some of us want to receive Christ as king for the first time today. It could be be that you hadn't realized that he is the coming king. And you want to respond and follow him today, uh, ascended and reigning on the throne. Well, do ask me or Jonathan at the end how you can do that. We'd love to pray a prayer or just ask the person next to you what you need to do if you want to follow Jesus and they'll help you. It could be that some of us here, if if we're followers of Jesus already, we simply need to pray for someone that we know, as we'll do on Wednesday night, that Jesus will show himself to them, that they might find him as saviour, king, and redeemer. And it could be for all of us that we just want to thank him today, that he came to do the right thing for us, to save us, and to pay a great cost, willingly, to bring us back. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that uh, in all of the circumstances of our lives, as in Ruth and Boaz's, the Heavenly Father is at work, graciously, bringing about his hidden purposes and sending his kingdom. May we trust you more deeply as we learn from this story and may we even more trust you in your wisdom in sending the Lord Jesus Christ as King and Saviour to redeem us. May we be those that help others to see this story and to put their faith in him too.